Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. All right, Brandon, straight from uh, somewhere in Star Wars. What is this? Uh, Return of the Jedi? <laughs> Dude, I don't, I don't even know. I just like the, the background. It makes me look pretty so I, I used to have all the i was a huge star wars fan when i was a kid and i had that i had the millennium falcon i had like all those toys and i would like set them up with all these action figures everywhere it was like the coolest thing um so I, this is my favorite background i've seen with you yet nice so but today we're going to get into september's research roundup um these are two that i'm really excited about because i think they're extremely applicable to the clients that we work with. I mean, so often I get asked about alcohol, which is the first one we'll get into. And how do I fit that into my macros? And should I pull from fat or should I pull from carb? Or is it really going to affect me? Um, and I've always felt as if I have science-based answers, but I'm glad that we're doing this because it really will be the most evidence-based answer I can give them now. Um, and I actually will say I was even somewhat surprised uh, by the result. I, I did skim through it a little bit. And I remember seeing a couple of things that I was like, oh, really? Like, I thought it might have been worse. Um, but I'll, I'll be interested to kind of pick your brain because I've looked at a few different people that have research reviewed these type of studies. So um, I'm interested to hear your, your take. And I have a few questions. So let's, let's kind of dive right into it. And if you want to um, just kind of explain uh, the first study and, and kind of go through the uh, questioning that you add, then we can, then I can kind of pick it apart and ask you questions off that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this is, this is actually a follow-up study. Um, so it's by Molina Hidalgo. Uh, the, the 2019 study was on body composition. Uh, so I look back and have that in my write-up, but it's called the beer hit study. So like beer is alcohol, hit is in high intensity. Mm. Um, and basically they wanted to know if I drink moderately throughout the week. I wouldn't even call it moderately. I would call it like minimally throughout the week. Uh, does it affect my performance or body composition? And I'll quickly kind of summarize the body comp. It doesn't seem to have an effect. Uh, so in the performance aspect, what they did was they took, I think it was like 70-ish people. And the design of the study is really unique um, because normally you randomize people to groups and you're good. Right, so that kind of all the confounders of baseline kind of even out and supposed to fix things. Uh, but this study, because of their ethical guidelines, had to let people choose. So the first thing they said was, "Okay, hey, do you want to train or do you not want to train?" And so you chose that first, which is you know kind of normal. Like some people train, some people don't want to. And then for the training groups, they said, "Okay, do you want to drink or do you not want to?" And then finally, within the drinking group, did anybody say no? Well, so I, <laughs> I, I looked at the uh, the non-training controls, and guess how old all of them are? Twenty-one. 
no 19 so yeah oh, i'm, I'm non-drinking sure. i thought you meant drinking yeah okay yeah yeah so that was like a little tidbit i was like how did they do that with 20 year olds i was like oh yeah they were probably those people didn't actually have a choice yeah <laughs> uh, so within the the alcohol groups uh that's when they finally used randomization they said okay you want to drink you want to train and they randomized between beer and sparkling water plus vodka equivalent alcohol content um, and then for their controls of each one of those, they had a non-alcoholic beer um, or just sparkling water as a comparison. Um, so the calories weren't like perfect, but they didn't really do any nutrition stuff anyway. So it, it's kind of whatever. Um, okay. So you have those five groups, a lot of groups going on. They then, for the training group, that well, the non-training group just kind of did nothing. Uh, the training groups had a 10 week intervention where they came in to what I imagine is like a small group training center uh, in groups of eight. And they did, um, have you ever seen the TRX small group training mm -hmm. thing? Yeah. yeah. So they basically did that. Like, you know, TRX pulls, horizontal rows, they did some push ups, some, some bodyweight squats, um, kind of in a hit fashion, 45 seconds on 15 seconds off. Um, and so they did that for 10 weeks. They started at, like 45 minute classes um, at RPE eight ish. Uh, and then by the end of the 10th week, I think there are 65 minute classes at RPE 10. So they were, they're pushing it. Right. Um, but again, no like progressive overload type stuff here. Right. This is just like basically body weight training or less than that. Um, so I didn't mention this with the drinks, but the, the drinking groups had the males had two drinks a day and they had one with lunch and one with dinner. Um, so either beer, vodka, and then the females only had one drink a day and that was at lunch. So that's why I said kind of like minimal, not necessarily moderate drinking, but it was Monday through Friday. They gave them alcohol and Saturday, Sunday, they didn't track and they, they didn't report anything. So it's kind of a, a mini flaw in the study is like, okay, we're giving people alcohol a week. They signed up for the study. They chose to train knowing they'd get alcohol, but we're not going to track their, their alcohol over the weekend. Yeah. So long story short, they measured VO2 max, which is more an endurance outcome. Uh, they measured hand grip strength, which is kind of just lame. Um, and then they measured a bunch of jumping outcomes. So counter movement jump, uh, there was another jump, uh, like a drop jump, where you like drop off a box and jump. Yep. And then there was another one that called the Abakalov jump, which is just a counter movement jump where you actually just swing your arms up. So three jumps, uh, they found alcohol essentially did nothing. Like it didn't hurt their, uh, their performance. It didn't help it. It just, everybody got about 18% better in VO2 max, um, hand grip strength. It was like 15% or something. Um, but kind of to my surprise, at least, uh, I was like, oh, well, so I can drink taking from the results i can drink a little bit each day and probably not hurt my performance if i'm a beginner because these were untrained people mm -hmm. so you have that huge bonus that everybody gets when they're untrained um, so those are the, that's kind of like the, the the main takeaways that i had for the, the summary what was the age range i know there were so some the, 18 year olds but what was the oldest yeah so the average was like 25 26 because okay. i wonder too is is you hear this a lot and this might just be wives tale but like you know when you get closer to 30, 40, you're kind of like, oh, I don't recover the same as I used to. So 
<laughs> your hangovers kind of intensify, you know, as you get older, but th there's also the question of, um, how much they're drinking. Like, is it really enough? Cause I know there is one study that showed, um, some pretty serious detriment to performance, but if you look into the detail, I mean, they took like 15 shots of vodka for the study and it's like, well, no shit. Who, first of all, who can do that? Kudos to you. I'm out by like eight, <laughs> but on top of that, like, obviously that's going to, you know, wreck you. So do you think like, there's kind of like this bell curve of this range where it's like, you know, a little bit is okay. But once we start pushing past a certain amount, then it's an issue. Like I know for me, even on Sunday, my father came over, uh, we barbecued for him. His wife was out of town. So we just like cook for him and stuff. And he wanted to have a couple beers. So I had a few beers with him. I think I had three beers over the span of like four hours, right? Mm -hmm, Not right. nearly enough to get me drunk or anything like that. I trained my ass off the next day. I felt amazing. But Sundays I don't train. And so on Saturday I would have like seven or eight beers throughout the span of four or five hours, you know? And the next day I'm like, I'm a hundred percent unable to train. Like I would just be a horrible session. So do you think there is really like, besides just like experience telling me that, but like, there's probably this range where like, once you get past a certain point, you probably are going to see detriments to performance. I think so. And all of the studies have this kind of proof of concept going on right now where, you know, you look at the, the glycogen resynthesis study um, showed that, you know, if you replace what you would have eaten with alcohol, like, yeah, it's worse for you the muscle protein synthesis study, and I covered all those on Instagram, if anybody wants to look back, but muscle protein synthesis, they gave like six or seven drinks. And yeah, it hurt muscle protein synthesis, but that's kind of an acute measure. So I think, you know, we're at this range where yes, like six plus is probably going to be bad, uh, maybe like five plus, but from the, the one to four range, we don't know if there's an effect, how big it is, uh, you know, is it recovery? Is it kind of strength based? Is it endurance based? We're, we're still trying to figure that out. And there's, I mean, there's really just not a lot of alcohol studies. We, we do know, and this is really obvious that back in the eighties, they did some studies where they gave alcohol before exercise and it, and it, they didn't do as well. So that, that's the, the surefire thing we know. Yeah. I remember, uh, I used to skateboard my whole life. I still do. But I remember going to the skate park and like, there was like a group of guys at night. If it was nighttime, they would like crack some beers and skate. And I would always watch, and I was obviously underage, but I'd like watch and be like, how are you functioning on that skateboard? <laughs> like I've watched you kill a six pack <laughs> like, and they're actually really good, which is wild. But um, no, that's interesting. I think that um, the other question I have on the muscle protein synthesis was, is actually something I was going to bring up. So I'm glad you just said that is like how, it, it, you said it's acutely, but like, if we're doing that, like, so we have like a couple of drinks every single day, do you think that's going to in, like inhibit muscle protein synthesis over the long term? Like, do you think they're like, I know you said like body composition didn't change. And from my understanding, you know, weight loss is really just calories in calories out. Right. So if you fit the, the, the alcohol in your calories, you're probably going to be fine, which is, is a subject I'm going to get to here in a sec, because I think, uh, theoretically doing it is different than actually doing it um, for most people. But um, theoretically, if you fit in your macros or your calories, you're still going to lose weight, right? I, I think there, I remember reading a study. It'd be funny if you wrote it, but um, a research review and Alan Aragon's research review years ago about this. And they showed that and it was like, they drank like a beer or a glass of wine every day. And there was no difference. And I was like, 
just mind blown at the time. I mean, this is, you know, five years ago, six years, seven years ago. And it was like the coolest thing. I was like, this is going to help my clients so much. But from a muscle growth perspective, I always had the assumption of like, you know, alcohol inhibits muscle protein synthesis. I never really looked into the data, but I just had always known that and heard that. So in my mind, it was like, I'm only going to drink once a week because if I keep drinking, I'm, I'm never going to build as much muscle as I possibly could because that alcohol is coming in. What's, what's the actuality in that? So that the, the NPS study, I mean, there's only one, right? So they drank like six drinks and there was like a 30% reduction. Okay. So if we kind of speculate a little bit and say three drinks would be 15%, I don't know. Over the long term, I, th- I think you're right. Like if, you're, if your goal is to maximize and optimize muscle hypertrophy or strength or literally anything with performance related, you're probably not going to, you're like, you're not going to want to drink that much. Um, but then again, like, like what you said, you know, Saturdays, you don't train Sundays. So you, if you're going to drink more, then you want to time it that way where it's like, all right, I trained, you know, Saturday morning, I got most of the kind of effects of training. And then Saturday night, I know I'm not going to trade Sunday, Saturday night, uh, afternoon, you know, then I drink a, a more and then by Monday I'm recovered fully. So I think that's all we really know. Um, again, there's, there's a lot of room. I'm kind of surprised not more people aren't researching this. I know there's some research in athletes um, and I didn't cover those studies for this time, but where like athletes after they win a big game or after they win any game, um, they go out and celebrate. Right. And so that hurts their performance down the road, but they seem to be okay because otherwise they wouldn't do it as much. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of those things too. Like the other thing that comes to my mind is if you're replacing 40 grams of starchy carbs every day with a couple beers, let's say, cause you equate the calories out, that's less and less glycogen being stored. And that's where you said there was that comparison study where it's like, okay, yeah, weight loss might be the same, but I think after weeks of doing that performance probably would start to be hindered because you're consistently less full glycogen wise. You're consistently having less energy stored to train with. You're consistently less hydrated in the muscular level. And I think like after a while, it's kind of like the whole diet break thing, right? Like short term, like eh, it doesn't really do anything. But I think like, okay, after a year or like a six month diet, let's just say more realistically, mm-hmm. all those diet breaks probably do add up to some small physiological changes just from cortisol management, um, which is another thing I was going to even say about this. Like I, I know for me, if I didn't have those Saturday nights, I think me being able to handle stress would actually be lower because that's like my night to just put everything away, have a few glasses of wine with my wife and just chill. And it's like that reset every single week that I have. Um, And I get a little loose every time. (laughs) So, but (laughs) I think that helps me in my long-term business development, training, all that stuff. Cause it's like that stress relief, you know what I mean? So um, even for like when I'm doing like a photo shoot or trying to get shredded, I usually keep that in until like probably like four to six weeks out then I'll be like, okay, I might cut out alcohol completely just because it's hard to fit it in my calories. Um, but, but yeah, I think like, and you said there was a study that actually showed like the replacement of is, is where we're going to see a hindering. Yeah. Well, so there's oh man. So it was a, it was an endurance based study where basically they were trying to figure out, all right, is the alcohol or is it the displacement of calories from alcohol? Um, and if you displaced calories, like if you had beers instead of your food, then it's, it's going to hinder performance. But if you had your food and your beer, it's not going to have an effect. Um, so I, I think that's counterintuitive because when most people drink, 
especially on the upward end of drinking, like they're probably going to eat more. Right. Yeah. So, so if you're, you know, if you have less glycogen or maybe you're, you just need more food from the workout week or whatever, like you're probably going to get it. Um, so that's why I'm like, well, you know, I mean, in practicality, I don't know that one night or maybe even two nights, like a moderate night, and then maybe a little bit heavier night is really going to do much. Um, but again, if you're trying to optimize everything in your life, you probably want to minimize drinking as much as possible. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things too, where it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword because if you're trying to get leaner or you want to stay lean while performing well or anything, you have to essentially take something out of your calories in order to fit that alcohol in to not gain fat. But if you could care less about body fat or if you're like at maintenance slash surplus, whatever, um, even for me, I'm in a pretty big surplus because I've been trying to gain weight. So it's way easier for me to fit alcohol in. I'll replace it. And I still have plenty of energy, <laughs> you know, because I'm eating yeah. plenty of food. But I think when you go into a deficit, it's harder. And that's like the big thing I tell clients is like, you know, every once in a while, it's fine to like, maybe you skip breakfast and fast a little bit or just have a protein shake and you save those extra calories and you have some alcohol at night, replace it with fats or carbs. Um, but if you're doing that on a consistent basis, you're going to be hungrier and hungrier and crave more and more because you're consistently restricting food so you can fit alcohol in, which we know alcohol isn't very satiating compared to healthy whole foods, right? High fiber foods, uh, yeah, vegetables, yeah. fruits, produce, whatever. So I think at a certain point, it, it's just an adherence thing. Like, yeah, you could get away with it, but I promise you it's not going to work for very long. Yeah. Especially, I mean, when I'm, when I was in prep, like those last four to six weeks, like you said, like you gotta, you gotta just cut it out and be like, mm -hmm. nah, and some people even farther out. Um, but you know, there, there's a whole field of research on wine <laughs> that's like, we're not even going to talk about, uh, with the polyphenols and stuff and people, scientists are still trying to figure out, is it like, okay, if I have one glass of wine a day, is that good or bad? Yeah, you know, or does it not matter? And it it all depends on what your outcome measure is, right? So here they did VO two max. Um, I mean, not many people are gonna go get a VO two max, uh, so the endurance athletes might care a little bit. But for your average Joe, like our our average client, this says, hey, you can have a few drinks and be okay. So based on the wine research, what do you think? <laughs> can I have a glass of wine? Shannon I mean, would be so happy if you said yes. <laughs> I will say yes to make your wife happy. <laughs> Perfect. Then we're all happy. Uh, I think, uh, cause that's a question I get asked a lot too. And it's, it's kind of one of those things where I've always just kind of thought like, yeah, there's things in there that are healthy for you, but come on, you're just trying to like have an excuse to drink. Um, but then I also know people who actually do just have like a glass and sometimes don't even finish glass. Shannon's one of those examples. She really loves wine. She actually got me into like wine tasting everything. Yeah. Sometimes she doesn't even finish the glass of wine. It's just like a little bit. And like, so she's healthy, she's lean. She's, you know, you don't see any mental fog with her, but I, I know for me, it's hard to have just a half a glass of wine. Like that's unrealistic. Yeah. I can't do that either. No, no. Two glasses <laughs> or none. <laughs> yeah. So that's a tough one. Um, last question on this one. Uh, if you, if somebody is like, okay, like I'm, I'm not going to drink much more than like once or twice a week, but I do want to fit it into my macros because I have a fat loss goal. Do you have a preference or is there any research that shows a preference to take away fats for that alcohol or take away carbs? I've kind of heard both arguments. Um, I've heard fats uh, just because of the way the body oxidizes different things and, and, and what stores as fat easier. Um, I've also even heard like, and I've even said this, like, Hey, if you get more satiated from carbs, then have carbs, not fat, because it'll be easier for you to adhere to the diet during 
when you're drinking. Um, and I know for me, if I don't have something to kind of soak up that alcohol, I'm, I get drunk way quicker. So maybe you want a little bit of carbs. Um, but then I've also heard other people that are like, well, fats are an essential nutrient. So I don't want you going low fat because that's unhealthy. Um, even though it's temporary, but what, what are your opinions? What do you think the science says? Uh, I would, so I usually tell people to replace their fat unless they're already like low fat. Like if you're super low fat already and it takes you from like 30 grams of fat to like 15 or lower or something, then, then use carbs. But if you're sitting at a nice, you know, 60 grams of fat or something and you can drop to 30, like, yeah, sure. Do that. That's probably better. Um, that way you're, you know, you stay topped off in glycogen if there's any effect there. Um, carbs are generally more satiating for most people, I think. And so like you can have, you know, some pretzels with your beer or whatever. Um, so that's what I tell most people. And I think that for most people that would have better adherence too. Um, but you know, if you're eating 500 carbs a day, then shoot, you could take it from that too. So I I take it from a combo because I am eating a lot of carbs and I have a relatively low fat diet. Um, but, but that's kind of what my, explanation has always been too. I always say, you know, it it makes more sense to take from fat because, you know, if you're training hard, your body's probably not going to store those carbs as fat anyway. So let's replace the the fat with it, you know? Um, so that, that's cool. I'm glad that we're, we're on the same page with that. I do have another point to make just for the listeners. It's not really a question for you, but you can share your thoughts on it too. Um, I don't know if inhibition is the right word, but essentially there, I believe there was some research showing that like when you drink alcohol, um, your ability to make smart decisions is significantly uh, <laughs> declined. Uh, and, and this is just from even like simple things, right? So you're, you're lazier, you're, you're less adherent, you're less compliant, um, you're easier, more easily influenced. Um, so uh, something for people to think about is, is, you know, like, even if you fit it into your macros, you're also putting yourself in a position where you're not going to be able to adhere to the diet very well. Even if you tell yourself like, no, like, that's not me. Like I I keep it under control. Like even just, you know, not even enough to get drunk, but like you, you put alcohol in your body, you're inhibit. I think it's inhibition is the word I'm looking for, but it's lowered, right? Yeah, um, yeah it's, a, it's an inhibition. You're right. So, um, so that's like the biggest thing too is is you could f- like there's been plenty of times where I fit in my macros and I'm like perfect, and then I have a few and I'm like, you know what? I really do want a street taco, so screw it. <laughs> and then the next day I'm like, oh, damn it, <laughs> I did it again. But it, it's it's difficult. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. I'm the same way. Like a couple couple of years, and I'm like. Yes, I want that monstrous German pretzel, please. Yeah, yeah. You know, and speaking of pretzels, you brought that up too. I was actually uh, a little side note for people. Um, one of the reasons why some pretzels are a really good snack while you're drinking. Uh, we had like these like pretzel chips. Have you ever seen those? They're they're pretzels, but they're like flattened. Yeah. And I'm I'm like snacking on them, having some beer, and I look at the back, and there's zero fat. Oh yeah, in, in the those serving. are awesome. And I was like, oh my god, these are perfect. Why have I not looked at this food label? Because to me, I keep my diet pretty regimen. So I see stuff in the pantry. I don't even entertain it. I just leave it there because I know it's for Shannon or the baby. <laughs> but once I saw that, I was like, pretzels are my new snack because I had no idea there was zero fat. Yeah, that those I forget the brand of them, but those were like a staple during my prep, like staple. Oh, yeah. They're so good. Um, so, uh, rounding out that one guys, basically, um, you can get away with drinking alcohol. It's not going to harm your performance. If it's, uh, four drinks or no, six drinks, less than six drinks, you said 
six strengths um, and above is where we start seeing a decline in things. Yeah, like an acute decline. There's a, again, there's only a couple of studies, and this was on like one or two drinks a day. Right. So I would say, you know, one or two drinks a day, you're probably fine. Um, but you know, when you get above like five or six or something like that, you're going to see some detriment somewhere. Yeah. And, and something for people to remember too, is like, even if you're like, okay, well, I'm only going to have a couple nights where I'm, I'm drinking a lot. Okay. It takes you a day or two to recover from that. And then you drink another, after another day. And then you have another couple days after weeks and weeks and weeks, like that is going to wear on your performance over time. Um, I would also say too, there is for some people, some inflammatory issues that happen when we have too much alcohol. So even if you're having just a little bit of alcohol, all the time after a while you might be like i don't even could be joint pain gut health like there's little things that could come up that you want to be aware of um i think the cool thing about this study is it just shows that the principles of flexible dieting still apply here it, it's you just can't take it too far out of hand um there was even uh oh this is i, I lost my train of thought and i didn't bring this up but i was going to bring this up during the last one so before we get in this um i read this piece in uh reading it's an exercise physiology textbook and I'm just kind of like going back through it. And <laughs> it said that the average person has enough stored uh, um, lipids of so fat to run from uh, this, the downtown San Diego football season uh, stadium all the way to Seattle Safeco field. And it's like, it's literally like a, tw I don't know how long. And then for carbohydrates, the average is 20 miles. So you can run 20 miles on the current carb stores you prop you have. And this is probably like, I mean, mentally people would give out way before then, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the reason I bring it up is because, um, I mean, I had a reason why that applied to the alcohol thing, but I also use it as an example with one of the coaches today who was worried about taking a pretty low calorie period of time where it was like, I really don't want to push them this low. And I shared that with her and was like, Hey, like sometimes you do have to get pretty low and just remember that she could probably run from San Diego to Seattle <laughs> and be fine. Uh, don't make her do those long distance runs like that. But the point is, is, is like, she has enough stored lipids or, or fat or energy that she can actually go pretty long. It's why like that one guy fasted for a year. He just drank water for a year. He lost like 300 pounds, which obviously he has, he's on a whole nother level, but, um, you can actually go pretty long, you know, with, with um, things. And obviously metabolic adaptation is going to kick in and, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that happen, but um, for somebody who does have a lot of fat to lose, it just goes to show like you can, you can spend some time in those low calorie di diets. Um, and I did have, I had a reason why that applied to the alcohol thing. I just have no idea what that, that relation was, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but I'm glad I shared it. Cause I think it's good for people to hear Cause there's like this stigma where, I feel like for women, it's 1200 for men, it's 1500 where they're like, oh my God, you went below 1200 calories or, oh my God, you went below 1500 calories. And I mean, when I did my show, I was definitely below 1500 calories because there was no other way for me to get on stage. Like there just wasn't. So I think some people have unrealistic and, and with all the reverse dieting and metabolic adaptation, or I should say metabolic damage. Cause it was when that came out, when that was the thing. Mm -hmm a lot of people got afraid of low calorie diets. And what I saw is a lot of people not getting results with their clients because they were afraid to push the boundary a little bit. Um, and I think you and I think pretty similarly on this because we've had discussions with the team and stuff like that too. But, um, but I thought that uh, that's, that average was really cool. Um, I'll send you a picture of the textbook when I get home so you can see which one I'm talking about. But um, I, I got the recommendation from Eric Trexler because I was like, I need to freshen up on some of the energy systems and stuff. But I was shocked from San Diego to Seattle, you could make it on the stored body fat you have on the average person. Crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And to touch on the, um, the low calorie diets, I, I think, I think I'm going to do a con ed for, for TC, you know, for you guys this month on low calorie diets. Cause there's a lot of, I mean, there's a whole field of research on 800 calorie diets, Yeah, like a whole field. And it's like, well, obviously researchers have been using this for 30 years. It, it's, it has its place. Um, you know, 1200 calorie diets for super obese people have their place. So I think, I think there's some like stigmatism with the going too low. Yeah. I agree. And I think it's just, it's really just a matter of like, how do I get my client to adhere to this? Cause it's not inherently unhealthy, especially if somebody has 50 to hundred pounds to lose, actually going that low calorie is even more healthy because they're going to lose body fat and that's more dangerous to their health than a low calorie diet is temporarily. Now, if I were to put you on an extreme low calorie diet, it would kind of just be like, why? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's a little different. Yeah. So it, it's really context specific, but, um, cool. Let's, let's get on to the second study. Which one is, what do we got here? Okay. So this is a, basically a study where they compared four hour and six hour time restricted feeding. Um, so time restricted feeding has been super popular, like the past five or six years. Um, in our kind of domain where people, where we kind of care about it, uh, Grant Tinsley and uh, Morrow have published a lot of stuff to show, you know, if your resistance training and your time restricted feeding, um, it, there's not really a difference and you can maintain your muscle. Right. And I was actually going to ask you earlier, have you had Grant on your, on the podcast yet? I haven't. Oh man. Uh, I'll, I'll, you need to get him on. He's really cool. Good. Connect me. Uh, um, anyway, so this study was a randomized control trial. They had a four-hour TRF group, a six-hour TRF group, and a control group. The control group didn't do anything. Good control group. So um, real quick, when you say four, okay, so feeding window. So basically four-hour yeah. time-restricted feeding, it's basically like that's a, uh, what is that, 20-hour? That's a 20-hour fast? And then yes. a six-hour yeah. is an 18-hour fast? Thing. So those are actually pushing because a lot of people – are like flirting with 14 or 16 hour fast. So this is actually going closer to like the warrior diet. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And they, they actually mentioned it in the, in the study. I'm pretty oh, sure cool. it's like the, the four hour uh, window. Um, but yeah, most people, I would say on average, uh, it's an eight hour eating window, right? So you either yeah. take out breakfast or you take out dinner and you just shift back. Uh, so this study, the four hour windows was from three to 7 PM. So you could still have like a normal dinner with your family and stuff. Uh, the six hour window was from one to 7 PM. So maybe you could have like a normal lunch at work or whatever, and then still have a, a decent meal um, before you had to stop eating. And I think that's it. in practical purposes. That's how most people are going to use windows. They're, they're probably going to knock out breakfast. Okay. So they did this for 10 weeks. Uh, now these were um, obese, untrained, uh, middle-aged, mostly middle-aged women. So not super pertinent to like our clients, but you know, we still get people who are in that, that type, type of uh, body. This will be interesting too, because honestly, this is like the type of client I typically don't like to put on a time restricted feeding diet. Cause in my mind, like usually if stress is a factor, that's an issue, um, potentially menopause and, and different hormonal things starting to decline. Usually I'm like, Hey, let's get frequent feedings in. So your body's well nourished. So I'm interested to see where this goes. Yeah. So their primary outcome was like weight loss, just straight up weight loss, um, which we've talked about before is not necessarily the best primary outcome, but in this population, you, they're like obese, right? These are a hundred kilo, so 200 pound, five foot six, um, females. So, you know, they need, they need to lose some weight, um, to get healthy. Yeah. 
So end of the study, 10 weeks later, uh, the four hour and six hour groups both lost 3.2% of weight. So about three kilos, three and a half kilos. And um, in terms of rate of loss, that's not very fast. Like, you're, you know, you're looking at uh, about a, less than a pound a week. Um, so it's not like they were losing a ton of weight really quickly. And then they did a bunch of outcome measures, but the, the main other one that I wanted to point out was the, the fat mass. So obviously the control group didn't lose any fat mass or lean mass. Uh, but the, the four hour and six hour groups were not different for fat mass or lean mass changes um, statistically. But if you look at uh, the graphs in here and they have individual points, which is really nice. Um, there's a slight advantage for the fat mass loss for the four hour group. So they lost a little bit more fat, maybe like a kilo more fat on average. And then on the lean mass side, the four hour group actually held on to about a kilo of lean mass. So there's like this magic where they're, they're like you lost more fat and you maintain more muscle. Um, and they didn't lose a whole lot of, a lot of lean mass anyway, like one to two kilos. Um, but the problem with this study, the main problem, as you can imagine, is if you have no idea what they're eating. Like they didn't have to report eating. They, it was untracked during their feeding windows. They could eat whatever they wanted. Um, so at the end of the study, they did do a, I think it was like four or five days of tracking. And what they found was that both groups reduced caloric intake um, by about five to 600 calories, which is pretty standard across all TRF studies. Like if you just took someone and put them on TRF and didn't, didn't put them on an actual diet, just said, hey, you're just gonna shift your feeding window to eight hours or six hours or whatever. Most people will reduce calories by about 500 calories per day. I think the, have you, are you familiar with the lean gain study? I think they called it, it was six, 16, eight. And I think they did it in lifters. Um, I believe that uh, at the end of it, when they tracked, they were in a 250 calorie deficit and like the weight loss was very, very like barely different at all. Like I think uh, the, the fasting group definitely lost more weight, but like barely at all. And there was 250 calories, bigger deficit. Um, so that make that lines up with this one as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's probably the most repeatable thing I've seen in the TRF studies. It's like, Oh no, you're going to eat less, like pretty much guarantee you're going to eat less, whether that's good or not depends on your goal. Yeah. Um, let's see. So they didn't have any like performance outcomes or anything. They did do health outcomes like blood pressure, heart rate, uh, HDL, LDL, triglycerides, you know, health parameters. And none of those changed um, with the, any intervention. So basically like there was no advantage to even either type of TRF. Um, they did see a small advantage with uh, insulin resistance with four hour and six hour. So it got better basically, or they were more sensitive to insulin after the study. Um, but they did lose weight, which a lot of people, when they look at, you know, the, the indirect effects of TRF or whatever diet, it's always like, Hey, you know, it improves your blood glucose. It's like, yeah, it does. But you also lost three kilos of fat. So that plays a role too. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, you can't really adjust for that necessarily, um, or at least most people don't. Uh, and then, do you think? God, do you think that like there's more of a sensitivity to just because they're taking so much time away from eating? Because I know, like, 
you know, if you don't eat for 16 to 18 hours, you're moving anything like that. The second you have carbs, you are going to be more insulin sensitive to that meal. So do you think like there's, there's also this like potential margin of error because well, they're fasting. So when they're not eating their insulin sensitivity improves acutely. Right. And that's going to trigger it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, that is de a definite effect and most diets show an improvement in insulin sensitivity. Um, it with or independent of uh fat loss yeah and okay. like like you said 20 hours of, of fasting is a long time to fast yeah it is um I, I like that uh you put in the health markers in the last bullet is inflammatory markers uh didn't change between the groups right they're both equally declined um which is cool because one of the biggest claims from like fasting zealots is that all these inflammatory markers are going to drop. And um, there's another thing that they always claim. Uh, autophagy. Autophagy. There you go. It's like, which is essentially, right. That's just like the re it's almost like the reformation of a cell, right. Or mitochondria. Um, yeah. I guess the question for you is one, is that true? And is it really as important as they make it seem? So I think there's like one, maybe two studies that show an advantage for autophagy. And I, I'd have to go back and reread them. Um, but I'll pivot to inflammation because I've studied inflammation more than autophagy. Um, in normal people, like it is super, super hard to get any inflammatory response, like circulating in your blood. Even these people who are obese females, like not trained. Uh, you look at TNF alpha and IL-6, which are the two main inflammatory markers that people will look at first they're not high, like high at all. They barely come up as detectable in your assays. You really have to get someone who's diseased. Like I did, um, I did a panel on some burn patients one time and their IL-6 and IL-8 were like through the roof. But on my controls, I couldn't get anything. I was like, all right, I guess that's zero. And for the burn patient, it's like a hundred or something. Mm. Um, so those, those biomarkers are really hard to find results in. And I always kind of, question those the most, um, especially if you're looking at like one study, right? Uh, because ultimately, and we always go back to this, is we care about the long-term effects. Like, yeah, I might be able to find an acute effect, but if it doesn't pan out over 8, 10, 12, 20, whatever weeks, like, I don't care. Like, yeah. it's not, it's not going to really matter in the long run. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, the problems with like the whole inflammation topic as well is it's almost like a, a scapegoat for most things. Like, somebody has an issue. Oh, it's inflammation. Oh, like I've, I haven't been productive lately. Oh, you got some inflammation. Like, Oh my gut hurts. Inflammation. Can't lose fat inflammation. It's like always, you know, like it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. But hormones. I think that, yeah, hormones is the other one. Um, but I, but I think that, uh, you know, for me, like the only time I really have a discussion about inflammation with clients is usually like joint inflammation, which is completely different topic, you know? Um, and, it does happen, you know, like, so I think that, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, that's one of those topics, hormones and inflammation actually are two topics that really like bug me because not that they're not ever important because there are scenarios where we do have to have that discussion or, or maybe it does come up, but it, it's far less often than people make it seem. Um, mm -hmm. and like hormones is like the first thing people blame when they can't lose fat. And a lot of times it's, adherence to the diet you're not actually in a deficit maybe your metabolism is a little bit slower than you thought but 
you're not damaged. You don't have any hormone issues. You know, um, I've even had clients or people come to me. They're like, I thought for sure it was something, but I got blood work done and everything's fine. So what's going on? And I'm like, you need That's to eat favorite. less, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. which sometimes it's helpful to actually have clients. So for people listening, like if you struggle with this, like have them get a blood test because then you can either a, Oh shit, they do have a hormonal issue. Let's connect them to somebody who is a specialist uh, endocrinologist or B see, I told you, it's really not that you just got to eat less, right? It's a deficit and it sucks. And then that's just part of it, you know? Um, yeah. but I could probably go on and on about that. Um, but okay, cool. So, uh, both groups, um, the only awesome. reason the time restricted feeding lost more is just basically because the deficit, the health markers were, there was no changes. Um, what else? What's next? Um, so that, that, I mean, that's kind of it for the study. It was pretty simple. There was some, um, adverse event type things. So like when you diet, sometimes you get headaches or dizzy or nausea or, you know, constipation or fatigue or all this other random stuff you have to deal with. Um, and there weren't really any big differences and by like week, I think it was like two or three, they were, they were gone. Um, so I think they were, they had a few headaches and they had dry mouth were the main two, um, issues. But uh, yeah, so I mean, not a super exciting study. I think these two studies, if you're, let's see if I can get a plug in for our, our mentorship thing. <laughs> if you care about research design and how people report things, these two studies did an excellent job in pre-registration. So before they even did anything with their study, they went in and they said, okay, we care about this. We're going to measure this, this, and this, and this, and these are secondary outcomes. Um, and this is how we're going to do it. And they line it all out and make it all pretty. So I think, you know, from a scientific perspective, I appreciated these studies because they were like, well done. Yeah. And the reason he's, he mentioned the mentorship is because inside that we're going to teach you what to look for, why to look for it, how to read the study, so on and so forth, which I think to be honest with you, sorry, listeners, but by the time this airs, I'm pretty sure all the spots will be taken anyway. And so, <laughs> so just stay in the loop because I think we are going to create a waiting list for the next time we do it, um, which the date is not determined yet, but, um, but no, um, I think that's good. I think like something for people to remember too, and this is just from purely from experience and I believe there's a little bit of research. Like I know there's research that shows, you know, the deeper you get into a deficit, the more potential there is for increased cortisol levels just from the stress of dieting. Um, and I believe that occurs during fasting. Right. And isn't that why people will claim, you know, like, Oh, I'm so much more alert when I fast in the morning. It's like, well, your cortisol's higher. So adrenaline's going up and your body's like kind of going to fight or flight. So, which for some people might be an advantage. Like, I mean, if you, you know, if you're a busy businessman, but like my point with that is if you're riding this cortisol wave too frequently and you don't know how to shift into parasympathetic mode at night, or you don't get enough sleep, or you are somebody who gets anxiety more easily, or you have past um, adrenal issues like HBA axis dysfunction or any hormonal issues, fasting might not be the best route for you because you're, you might just encourage those uh, stress markers, those hormone markers that are already not in the best place ever, you know? Um, so just something for people to think about. Um, if you're a high level athlete, probably just not going to be able to get enough calories and you're probably not going to have enough energy. Um, if you're trying to build muscle, probably same thing. You're probably not going to be able to get as many calories. I think there's like some studies that show like, oh yes, like it doesn't harm muscle protein synthesis and you can fast and build muscle theoretically. However, for most people to truly build muscle and eat enough food, it's just damn near impossible to fast longer than 12 hours and, and get all the calories in. Um, 
And like the last thing I'll say is, is I'm, I'm not a huge fan of fasting personally with my clients, uh, but every once in a while I'll use it for somebody who can't adhere to it. And it's funny because I've, I, I've seen better results without it for most of my clients, but we're approaching, I think we're starting my cut in two weeks from now. Um, and I haven't been in a deficit for over a year. So it's been like, I was maintaining that I've been a surplus for eight months. So my first thought was like, you know what? I might just do like a modified fast and just have a protein shake with my fish oil in the morning because I don't want to have like little meals at lunch or dinner. Cause those are the meals I enjoy the most where my breakfast is kind of like, let me just get some in and go. But my breakfast is 700 something calories. So it's like, I'm just probably going to remove that and save some of my calories for like dinner. And then it'll be easier to adhere to. So it's kind of funny how like full circle now I'm like, you know what, maybe I will use it in a modified way. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a tool. Everything we talk about on here is always a tool. Like yeah. nothing's perfect. There are, I, I kind of, I wrote this in the write up. I'm like, I'm hoping that scientists are trying to find a way, not the way. Right. So help yeah. people. Yeah. I think, uh, I've said this before on the podcast, but sometimes it's, it's like, I want people to know that it's somewhat disappointing, even to me as somebody who's been in this for so long. Like I want there to be like this study. That's just like, Oh my God, it's not just calories in versus calories out, <laughs> you know, but study after study after study, it's basically like, Oh, you know, like if, if your volume's there, you're probably going to build muscle. Oh, you know what? If your calories are equated, you're probably gonna lose fat. Like it's always kind of just the same shit. And it's like all these studies just prove different ways of achieving that, you know? Um, and it takes a while because you need many studies on one topic to prove that because a lot of times something like the warrior diet or keto comes out. And at first we think it's this like magic pathway. Well, we don't, but a lot of people do. Um, and then once there's like countless studies that actually get published a year or two later, because it takes a while, then we go, Oh wait, never mind. It's just calories. It's not worth it. So, but cool. Do you have anything else to to share before we close it out? Mm, no, I think that's about it. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of, I, I'm overwhelmed with how many studies come out each month. I'm just like, man, I want to read all of them. And I, and I can't even know that's my job. Yeah. I was going to ask you, honestly, like, how, like, do you, like, how do you, cause it's so you're literally, this is why I love having you on the team. You're like an encyclopedia to an extent where it's like, what do you think about this topic? And you're like, well, there was this study on this and this study on this. And I always think like, how on earth do you have the time to read? And I guess you've been doing it for years. So it's like accumulation of all this time reading studies, but yeah, impressive, man. It's impressive. Yeah. I think I average probably like seven to 10 studies a week, you know, and I don't retain everything, but like things that really like, I'm like, Oh wow. That's yeah. never would have thought that like I def- definitely retain that stuff. I got overwhelmed when I saw the Excel spreadsheet for like what they look through before doing mass research review. Cause they released that and they're like, Oh, if you want to pick it apart, you can grab studies. And there's just, I was just like scrolling and scrolling and <laughs> scrolling. So many. And then I look at the top and it was like July. And I was like, no way. This is just July's spreadsheet. What the hell? This is crazy. Um, But cool. Uh, We'll wrap it up there. Guys listening, uh, this was a good one. I think this is really applicable. It's going to help you a lot. And remember that there is a link in the description of this podcast that says you can ask me any question. If you have any research topics that you want us to dive into or that you think would be cool. Maybe you heard of a study or maybe you haven't learned about a a study on a certain topic. You can always ask me a question and just say, this is for a research review in the form and just let us know what you want us to do. um, And we'll look into it. But um, other than that, thank you for listening and we will catch you next month. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. 
I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.